Today's episode of The Shamrock is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com backslash tips. That's gotomeeting.com backslash tips. Pete Sampson, and welcome to the latest episode of The Shamrock. I'll be joined by a minute by my co-host, Matt Fortuna, and our special guest from ESPN. You've seen his work on College Game Day. You've seen his work at the Masters, Tom Rinaldi, master storyteller. Uh, and uh, he had some great insights on, you know, not only the current state of sports, um, we spent a little bit of time on that, but also his first job at WNDU, the local NBC affiliate here in South Bend. And we spent a bunch of time on Brian Kelly as he's gotten to know him uh, in a different way than I think a lot of local beat media have. So some insights on the uh, uniqueness and peculiarities of Notre Dame's head coach. Um, I think you'll enjoy this conversation um, as kind of an insight into the, the guy who's running Notre Dame football in a, in a different way, in a different light than what you're used to. So let's get to our special guest from ESPN, Tom Rinaldi. Pleased to welcome to the latest episode of the Shamrock a special guest, Tom Rinaldi. You probably recognize him from his work on ESPN, uh, College Game Day, 12-time National Sports Emmy winner, uh, sideline reporter for ESPN. During normal times, he would be fresh out of Butler Cabin. Um, unfortunately, these are not, norm- <laughs> not normal times. Uh, and we brought him on, one, to talk a little bit about his career track, which you may not know started in South Bend uh, after, after J School. Uh, and then also... You know, talk about the industry because, look, in these very strange times of social distancing, I think we're all yearning for a little bit more of a human connection, and very few people tell the human connection story better, if anybody, than Tom Rinaldi on ESPN. So, Tom, first, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking some time to do this. And let's just start with that. How are you doing? I think it's it's a good first question for everybody these days, and it means something a little bit different than usual. Well, Matt and Pete, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I've said this on um, a number of other appearances that uh, I've made during this unprecedented time, at least in our lifetimes. I think where you hear this really shapes how you hear it. And where I am, uh, where our family is, is in the second hardest hit state in the country, in New Jersey. And our county is the hardest hit county in New Jersey as well. So uh, it is absolutely remade and reshaped every aspect of local life here. We're just seven miles outside New York City. We know people who are healthcare professionals. One of our best friends is the chief of surgery at a hospital just a few miles away. Um, and to say, and in, in, uh, it can't be overstated, how this pandemic has affected our state and our community. And uh, we're grateful every single day that myself, Diane, my wife, and our two children are healthy, and that a lot of our friends are, although we certainly know other people who've been touched by this and affected by it. And you know, we have such great, great gratitude for all the healthcare professionals, everybody in the supply chain, everybody that's still out there 
facing this directly for the betterment of everyone else. Tom, how have you and your family kind of kept your sanity, for lack of a better term, during this time? Is it going for walks? Is it playing catch on the front lawn? I mean, what's what can you guys do for yourselves while still practicing social distancing and, and still um, taking care of yourselves and making sure you're not exposed to this illness? So what we, the, the, our kids are in 10th and 7th grade, respectively, Jack and Tess, and they're in remote learning right now. They're having different experiences in remote learning based on the two different schools, their grade levels, et cetera. Um, we're obviously spending a lot of time around each other, which is good. It's odd for the family because, as you guys can relate to, um, the travel piece has gone away. And so, like, Dad, when are you leaving again is, uh, I'm sure, a subtext <laughs> for a lot of our interactions, even though everyone's too kind to say it to me that directly. Um, and I've actually, I'm sure, like you guys, have been, uh, I've been busy. Um, and that's been writing essays and pieces of preparing for the NFL draft, helping us to get ready for that, uh, as well as having done master's features, features on uh, a whole variety of topics. So work, work has been busy, which has been a blessing. But uh, in terms of our interactions, um, whether it's catch with uh, our son, Jack, um, who's likely not going to have a baseball season now in high school, um, or our dog who's prepared since September for her competition and performance season in dance. These are the disappointments that have come with shelter in place. Tom, I, I was curious uh, in terms of, you know, your work and sort of looking ahead, let's just sort of hope and assume that there will be a college football season. Is your, is your sort of looking all the way ahead to that and figuring out, okay, here are the stories I want to tell. How, how much does the, do you feel like, the coronavirus, COVID-19 will, will fit into that storytelling versus the escapism of once college football happens, I think it, it will be a great diversion from what we're living through right now. Um, sort of balancing sort of the, the triumph and tragedy of that versus the escapism of like sort of hitting pause on our, our current situation and let have those fall Saturdays be more about football and football and football. That's a great question, Peter. And I think that all of us will re-enter what we do by degree. As we've heard so often from government officials, it won't be a flip a switch scenario. So I do think that initially we'll have to try to find that balance between talking about how COVID-19 has reshaped the landscape, how it has altered the schedule, the on-ramp into the season, should we have it, et cetera. But I also think that has to be balanced with, as you said, Pete, the escapism of people wanting to see some of the stories and some of the pure XO that we devote ourselves to at game day and you guys devote yourselves to at the athletic, uh, that people are missing that and they're going to want to see how is Notre Dame going to fare. It has you know, some in incredibly compelling non-conference matchups that people have circled for quite a long time. Um Obviously, every time ND plays Clemson now, all those things are on the table. And I think people are fascinated and compelled by that as much as they are in that by degree reentry of understanding how COVID-19 is going to reshape every institution in our society when we will hopefully get uh, rejiggered and re-triggered and um, I know that college football is not going to be an exception to that. In fact, and I'd be curious as to what you guys think, I think college football will be more deeply touched by it than 
most sports because campuses need to be open, I think, for college football to happen. And that is a, a huge, huge decision and endeavor as opposed to a professional league. Yeah, I agree. I think that's what what makes this such a, an unknown, particularly as it relates to college football in terms of, one, the manpower that it takes to put on an actual football game, and two, uh, I don't know who's going to be making these decisions because there's no commissioner of college football. There are 130 FBS teams that operate either independently or under the, guys, or under the leadership of their own conference. Um, and like you said, I don't know if you can have college athletics and games and practices without actual students on campus. So I think there's still a number of hurdles to clear before we get any kind of clarity about what's going to happen and when it's going to happen, if so. And on, on that point, Matt, I thought it was interesting to hear Gene, uh, Gene Smith at, at Ohio State mention the fact that, hey, wait a second, how is it going to be safe for the football player, the athlete, and not safe for the student? And that would really throw a deep shade on the term that the NCAA uses all the time, the student athlete, the student athlete, the student athlete. And I think having a separation there is one issue. Number two, if there was a separation, how's that going to reshape and rechange the conversation regarding pay for athletes as well? So all of that is in play as we consider college football and what shape it might come the fall. Yeah, I have a interview set up with Notre Dame athletic director Jack Swarbrick in the in the coming days, and yeah. that's I mean that is a question that I want to get into him with. One of his, one you know, Notre Dame and is sort of on record at least on the administrative side. It's like you can't have football without college. You can't have college football without college. Which to me, I think people have made this. I'm curious, Tom, your opinion on this. People have made this next jump to like, well, can you have college football without? a full stadium because is the, is if you say you can't come to the game, is there an assumption of risk there that then you're putting on your players or your student body? And I'm curious about Swarbrick's opinion of this, because to me, I would look at it as we're going to have a very sort of disjointed re-entry into society. That just may be one of those disjointed facts where you feel comfortable having your college open, which means you have comfortable having your college football team back. But to me that the next, automatic jump is not necessarily you have to have 80,000, 110,000 people. You don't need to invite risk on top of that to sort of like, you know, I think sort of add a degree of uncertainty to it. Um, that to me, I look at that and say like, this could be one of these awkward reentry points where an empty stadium is not okay, but it, that doesn't mean that it automatically would be not safe to have a college football game with a thousand people in this in sort of working the game, which would include the players and the coaches. And there you touch on people, what I consider to be a perfect example, a snapshot of the incredible complexity unique to college football. When you look at the sports landscape firing up once again, I mean, dorms, you don't have to go any farther than that. If you're going to describe a Petri dish for spread, a dorm, dorm life, young people, their notions of invincibility, the closeness of their quarters, the fact that they're going to share bathrooms, all, all these things that, that go on in college life that shape it, inform it, and are a, a part and parcel with opening the campus. And so uh, it is a complex decision. I also think that one thing I've tried to do, maybe this is the optimist in me, just as I think 
it would be so hard to envision where we are now five weeks ago. I try to tell myself it will be equally difficult to envision where we'll be five or 10 weeks from now. And so trying to apply the present moment into the future while plans are essential, having a real bedrock belief that we know what it'll look like, feel like, what its shape will be, uh, I think adaptability is going to be most important. Tom, I'm not sure how many of our listeners are aware that in a Tom, I'm not sure how many of our listeners are aware that in a previous life you were an educator, you were a high school teacher and a handball coach. I'm curious, A, how does that shape your perspective of everything going on right now, particularly as it relates to people eventually getting back into a classroom and a learning environment? And two, uh, have you had to go back to any old tricks now uh, with homeschooling with two of your kids at home right now uh, during remote learning? Please share. Yeah, so I was I was a high school teacher when I got out of college. I went to college in Philly and uh, taught in, at a private school in Pittsburgh for a couple of years and then went to the other side of the spectrum and I taught at a public high school in the South Bronx. I was a high school teacher in both spots. I coached. I coached soccer and basketball. I coached handball in the Bronx, the most urban New York sport there is, of course, um, and loved it. Absolutely loved it. But uh, ultimately made a transition into nothing of any social value or redemption going into the media, or as I used to be a teacher. And I love those days. In terms of applying it, believe me, it's a hard sell. Um, <laughs> in fact, if when I enter that mode, I I prompt the eye roll and the shoulder turn faster than probably most parents do back at home because they feel like, well, wait a second, dad, you did this in, a, you know, in the Mesozoic era, you don't know what it's about anymore. We're not interested that you're impassioned about split infinitives. You know, <laughs> let's stay focused. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> not, not doing great there. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. And also, uh, your time at WNDU local, uh, NBC affiliate here. Um, I've done some some work for them on their pregame shows and postgame shows yeah. in the past. Um, I, I don't think a lot of people know that you have I, – I don't know if I, I would just use the term roots to describe anyone in local TV because um, you're not there long enough to, to put any of them down. But tell people about your, your time here. You caught a very, very good season uh, in 1993. Well, so let me, let me talk about two things in that. And if you'll indulge me, I have a story off the field, but which is like everything in, in South Bend in the fall in some way shaped by the football team and the season it's having. Um, <clears throat> my first job out of uh, journalism school was in South Bend, and I loved it. I, I had never been in the Midwest. I didn't know very much about South Bend. I didn't know very much about Indiana. I was a huge sports fan, but that was not my job. My job was a one-man band, a general assignment news reporter. And that's how I started. I thought, hey, I'll be here for six months or a year and onward. That did not happen. I was I was in South Bend for uh, two and a half years, and it took a while to, to have someone offer me uh, another posting somewhere. I ultimately went to Oregon, to Portland. But that 1993 season... Uh, I can tell you this, if you are a one-man band and working in news, again, the football program is such a massive part of South Bend's identity, in particular WNDU, 
then of course you're going to be involved in covering it, let alone someone that loves sport and dreams of one day being able to do sport and not just local news. Um, so I can only compare what I'm going to bring up right now, and it will it will spark pain in every Notre Dame <laughs> alum and every Notre Dame fan. You know where I'm going to go. This is the only thing I can compare it to. Have either of you ever been to Belmont when a Triple Crown is on the line? I cannot say that I have. I, I went in 2012 under the guise of seeing I'll Have Another, and the day before they announced he was out. So I have not. <laughs> so when it, here's why it's unique in all of sport. Because everyone, everyone, 100,000 strong, is pulling for just about everybody is pulling for the horse to win. Even if they bet against the horse, they want to say, I was there. I was there for history. And when it doesn't happen, the unique, peculiar, absolute hollowing out of every (laughs) heart and soul is devastating. And I've been there multiple times when it has failed to happen. There's only one experience in my time covering sport, which is close. David Gordon. (laughs) Thank you for (laughs) enunciating the names. (laughs) Okay. So, of course, you don't need me to tell you. Game of the century. Holtz. Irish over the Knolls. Here we go. Title. We're all we're, we're rolling. We're all set to go. Here comes the number 12 ranked Eagles. They've never beaten us. We're all good. And as you know from covering the game, I really believe this. The fan base at Notre Dame is unique to me in that if things don't go well early, it becomes a home field pressure more than an advantage, I would say faster than any other stadium I've been in in any other sport. It, the anxiety builds quicker in that stadium than I've seen it build for any other fan base. And in this game, famously, the anxiety built down at half, down big entering the fourth quarter, and then the miraculous comeback to go ahead with basically a minute to go, Glenn Foley, ladies and gentlemen, marches down the field, 41-yarder, David Gordon, and the hopes and dreams of the Irish are crushed. I was sent there with a camera to stand, guys, on the steps in between. I don't even know. I was probably about the 10-yard line, not on the field in the stands and I turned a package of just fans, heartbroken, enraged, crushed, dispirited. I mean, it was the most raw portrait you could imagine of uh, just a portrait of what it means to be a dispirited fan. And we ran that. And I, I, I mean, I'll never forget that. Never forget that moment when that ball, which never, ever wavered, it absolutely split the uprights, if I remember correctly. It made it so clearly. That 
is a moment I'll never forget. I, I think your uh, your description is pretty accurate about home field advantage turning into a home field disadvantage. I haven't covered any games that big there, but I think the the best parallel would be in 2012 after they beat Oklahoma in a big upset and came back to play Pittsburgh and found themselves down by 14 in the fourth quarter and ended up winning in triple overtime. I mean, that game, even now when you go back and watch it and look at all the different ways they probably should have lost, all the blown calls, you name it. Uh, I, I think that is probably the biggest parallel between 1993 and uh, 2012. Uh, I am curious. I mean, everyone knows about that game. Who are some of the, I mean, everyone knows about Lou Holtz. Every media guy seemed to love him because he was so accessible. Who are some of the, the better coaches, uh, players, people behind the scenes that you got to interact with that you truly enjoy going to work with and interviewing every day? So I, I don't know if uh, – if- I'll be cur- I would be curious as to what your interactions have been like and what your take is on Charlie Weiss. But one of the things that you know we were able to do, we told the story of Charlie, who was seen as obviously such a different figure coming in off the, the coaches that followed Holtz, um, and the story of Charlie Weiss in Montana, Matsurkevich, and what became mm-hmm. the somewhat famous pass to the right call. This was when Montana, who was in Mishawaka, as you guys know, the, the town next to South Bend, and was named for Joe Montana, um, a, a terminally ill child, was supposed to meet with a Notre Dame captain. It was arranged by the great job that Notre Dame Athletics does with outreach to the communities, in particular when it deals with children. But there was a class conflict, and none of the captains could go. So Weiss went and visited this boy. And the boy was too weak to throw a pass. Weiss got in the recliner with the boy to throw a pass to his mother and then asked him, what can I do for you? And the boy said, I want to call the first play of the game. And Weiss said, you got it. What do you want to call? He said, I want, I want it to be a pass to the right. And Weiss told the boy, we will do that. Friday night, that was a few days before, I believe the visit was on a Tuesday. Friday, the boy passed away. And Weiss was told on Saturday, Notre Dame's first possession was a fumble recovery inside their own one-yard line. And so Brady Quinn comes over, looks at Weiss, and says, I know what we had planned to do. And Weiss says, we don't have a choice. Sure enough, pass to the right, Fasano, tight end, 13-yard gain. And incredibly, despite just losing their son, that family watched, riveted. You guys know what the, the team represents to that whole region, nay, the nation. And what that gave that family, the fact that he honored that promise, made that play call, and ultimately it went for a meaningful game. That was one of the first, that was maybe the first or second interaction I ever had with Charlie. Um, And he was hesitant to share that story because he thought it was going to perhaps be exploitive. And he said, you have to go to the family first. And if they're comfortable, then I'll share it with you. And they were. And I'll never forget the interview we did with the family. Um, their, their lawn covered with the, 
dozens and dozens of huge floral arrangements that had just been taken from the funeral home and uh, couldn't even fit inside their house in Mishawaka. Uh, guys, if I could, back to that game of the century, 93. Uh, and again, I was a general news reporter at the time, but I'll tell you um, a huge story that really Im- made an impression upon me and shaped me a bit as a reporter happened as a result of the game of the century. And I don't know, Guy, if you know the name Mara Fox, if that name means anything to you, or if you've ever noticed, if you drive along Douglas Road, for those in or around South Bend are familiar with it or who are alums who are hearing this, who know what Douglas Road is now, 25 years ago, Douglas Road was a much more rural road. And in, in the hubbub in the wake of the game of the century, a law student at Notre Dame named John Rita was accused of driving drunk and hitting an undergrad named Mara Fox and killing her. Uh, he left the scene and was found hours later at his apartment. And it led to a huge trial in the South Bend community where ultimately John Rita was cleared. He was found not guilty of felony drunk driving. And one of the reasons it made such a deep impression on me was it was really the first trial guys that I covered, which garnered a lot of attention and the ability to speak to Mara's parents and the Rita family and to see uh, how that really gripped the South Bend community. Um, And that was a a really a formative experience for me as a local news reporter um, in understanding some of the, the, the ways that the South Bend community thought and judged. And ultimately what the reaction was to read his acquittal, which in many precincts was very, very negative at the time. Sorry to get so heavy, but that, that's just something I, I carry with me to this day from that my early arrival there in, uh, in South Bend. How um, you've sort of been around the program, obviously, since 93 in some ways. But, um, you know, Brian Kelly, over the last 10 plus years here, um, you know, has, is an interesting character. Um, and I, I think a lot of times we see coaches as characters because that's you know, they're people, but also we're like trying to psychoanalyze them at times. He is sort of interesting in sort of his, uh, I think quest to learn. Um, he's evolved so much in the last four years. What, as someone who spends, um, you know, time with, with these major college head coaches, uh, in more comfortable settings than, you know, Matt or I do often, what, what do you, see in Kelly that makes him a little bit unique or, or is he maybe more similar to some of the other higher end coaches that, that you spent a lot of time with? I do not think he's similar. I don't, I, I think he, he, I think, and I think you guys have done a phenomenal job covering this. And, and I brought this up to Matt um, when he was covering, I want to say, I don't know if it was the semi Matt or the national title, the national, yeah, the national title game where I, a piece that perhaps might not have been seen as pyrotechnical or see, I thought the piece that you did on the decision to let go of chip 
uh, I thought was a, a fascinating, uh, just a great, great piece. And it used this term. And I said this to Matt at the time, it used the term drag. And I thought it was such a fantastic observation, so much so that I took the graph out of the piece, I copied it, and it's still on the notes in my phone. And I look at it because I wonder in my own life where I am drag, where I am hurting the culture in my own house, where I am hurting the culture potentially in the teams I work on, in golf or tennis or college football or game day. And the reason I start the answer this way, guys, is to say, I think that Brian Kelly recognized in that one instance what he was. He saw some of the, some of the effects of what he had tried to leave behind and thought, if I changed and I tried to work through this, I don't want to let that come back and potentially you know, this is really a tough word to use, but in fact, what I want to build, I, I use that as a lengthy preamble to say, you know, you, you don't get to where Brian Kelly is without a healthy dose of self-belief. I mean, a really, really strong sense of confidence. Many times that is in direct opposition to evolution and change and self-reflection. And I know we, we love the simple story of look at what he did. He lost this weight. He practiced yoga. He sat and he met with every player. He, he sits with meal times. I don't care. You're still doing that. You're still doing it. And that's real change. And I think that that's a testament to the complexity of Kelly. Now, sure, you can say when you have a season like 16 and it's so tough, yeah, you you need to change. But not everybody does. And that's why people get fired. And I think that Kelly's ability to evolve and change and self-reflect, uh, I think is really impressive. And listen, I say this with, with some bias. I mean, I, I've, uh, I've helped them see some of uh, uh, Brian and Pocky's charitable galas in New York City and things like that. And I see the good that they do and the good that they put in the world. But even that aside, the ability to change, to not have success, Pete, render deafness. That is a very, very strong trait. I'll tell you, someone else who has that trait is Nick Saban. He, he is not deaf. He's open to the new and the nasty other. And that's one of the reasons why he's been able to perpetually succeed. Well, we'll have to extend your subscription by a year for free after those kind of words you had for, for <laughs> Peter. Oh, no, no, no. But, 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 but Matt, you know, I, I pulled you aside and said that. For anyone who's going to hear this who hasn't read the piece, um, I, I would hope you guys would link to it somehow in the podcast if you can. But it, it is just a terrific piece about culture. And I don't, and I don't mean to make this sound unduly harsh to long. I, I don't mean that. I just think it was a, it was so well observed. And it, it's a piece that can only be done if you have a great knowledge of a program. You, there's nothing about the piece that can be approximated or presumed. It comes from a great working knowledge and a long knowledge of a program and its players and its personalities to be able to create. 
Uh, we definitely appreciate that. Thanks for the kind words there. Uh, how long have you known Brian Kelly? Did you know him before Notre Dame? I know Cincinnati, those teams were in BCS bowls fairly regularly. Did you know him back then? And um, what's he like just to, to interact with day to day? I mean, Pete and I have, I would say, good professional working relationships with him. But even going into 11 years now, I think he more than anyone else in a in a position as high profile as his has done uh, a really good job of staying private and not letting the world and even a whole lot of people outside his inner circle know a whole lot about him. I did not know him. Obviously, he built a, a tremendous career, but before he got to Notre Dame and how you know the length of his tenure at Notre Dame says plenty. But it, you know, I would say that if you're with Brian Kelly, I think you find, and I'm not going to overstate my interactions with him or say that we go whitewater rafting every other weekend. We don't, <laughs> but. But I, I would say he's a guy that if, if you get 10, 15 minutes with him, you you want more. You you want to go and get a drink. He's the guy that you say, you know, hey, you, you want to go and grab a meal? or you he He's that guy. And I think, listen, he understands the rooms that he enters. And I'm sure you guys have observed that too. He's masterful at that. And I think that's one of the reasons why his tenure is as long as it is, even aside from the great success he's had on the field, is because he understands he's a deeply informed political animal. And obviously that comes from his background to a degree. But he really understands the rooms that he's in. He can be self-effacing. He can make himself the butt of the joke. He can be charming. And obviously you can see very different gears from him when he's in the competitive cauldron as well. Yeah, it's interesting. My first interaction with him, it was his opening press conference, I think it would have been December of, of 2009. And I went up just to introduce myself. Hey, Pete Sampson, I was with a publication called Irish Illustrated at the time. And he's like, you know, nice to meet you. Where are you from? You know, I said Grand Rapids, not too far from Grand Valley State. And he's like, oh, well, what high school did you go to? And I said, well, I went to Forest Hill Central. And he's like, oh, you're one of those smart kids. Like just these like little personal touches he, I think, finds a way to sort of engender goodwill in a a, a personal interaction. I could, I totally agree with. That. I mean, he's. I would love to go out and have a couple old fashions or a couple Manhattans with him because I, I think that he would be a not just professionally. I think it would just be a fun time um, to to sort of hear about the way he thinks because when you do spend time with him, I completely agree. You get ten minutes, you want twenty. You get thirty minutes, you want sixty. Um, and I think when you could sort of get him going on some personal stuff, um, it, it maybe it takes a while for him to warm up to it. But once he gets going, I, I find him fascinating to to talk to and interview about why he is the way that he is. And and here's an example, guys. Like when when I was a part of uh, of emceeing uh, the the galas in New York City, I, I you know this isn't maybe an odd thing to do but afterward because i've i've done this with a few other uh philanthropic interests whether it be with Tim Tebow or we were one of my uh, one of my best friends is is married to a leading actress who Mershka Hargate who's done incredible incredible work through law and order SVU for sexual assault victims etc i i went back to Brian and and said you know Here's a couple of ways I think you could reshape that night um, and not overhaul it at all, but ways to perhaps make it make your message a bit stronger or more effective. He was so open to that and willing to take it in and then make a change or two. And again, I think that that's such a small example, but it shows that he has an openness to him. 
He's also got a great sense of humor, and he's very good again at a at a quip. Mm-hmm. It, and he's got one of those memories. I don't know if you've experienced it, Matt. Where if he's got one little thing on you, that goes in the memory bank, and that does not go away. And he's got a couple things on me that way where maybe I haven't been at my best. And he's able to, <laughs> he knows when to pull it out and throw the jab. He's good at that. Yeah, him being from Boston, me being from New York, I feel like that's come up a couple times in conversation. Um, I think to, to go within the theme of everything we've said so far, I mean, Mike Bray has had some pretty candid conversations with both myself and others about, hey, I just finished year 20 here. I went through four or five football coaches my first 10 years, and I've had one the last 10 years. And there's a reason for that. This guy really understands what matters and what doesn't. I don't think he makes a mountain out of a molehill. He lets the small stuff slide and always recognizes the bigger picture. And one other story just to keep in mind, I mean, two, maybe three years ago, right before the NFF Hall of Fame dinner in New York, I was there the night before. I went out for a drink to the State Regis Hotel with my dad, who's an Italian immigrant and doesn't know a thing about football. And Brian Kelly's there. And we go up and say hello and my dad had no idea who he was. And to see Brian in the presence of someone who wanted absolutely nothing from him and who just wanted to have a good time and say hello, uh, to really see him let his guard down and be a normal human being, I think, one, he appreciated it because he doesn't get to do that in South Bend. And two, it was good for me because I don't get to see that at a press conference every Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm glad you had that interaction. What did your dad yeah. think? Oh, he thought, it was, he thought it was great. He couldn't believe how many people were coming up to, to say hello to him and, and asking for pictures and talking about their dead relatives who went to Notre Dame. Um, he, he thought the guy was awesome. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, what did you do this weekend without the Masters? I got to ask. So, uh, you know, uh, well, I made it a point to try to call during the week a lot of the people who I would have seen and spoken to and spent time with during this week. Some of them were members at Augusta who I've gotten to know now over the, you know, almost 20 years. Um, but I'll let you guys go with this where you want in your imagination for almost 20 years. You know, for those who haven't been to Augusta, it, the hotels and motels all sell out. So we have rented a house for the past almost 20 years with the same four folks, Van Pelt, Andy North and his wife, myself and our boss, Mike McQuaid. Now we rent many, many houses. Um, How on earth we have held together as a, as a quartet and with Susan North, a quintet is a testament to itself. But I could just tell you this. It is one of those houses where Someone proclaims at 1045, I'm going to go up. And suddenly it's 1 a.m. and no one has gone (laughs) up and everyone is still sitting there. So that's the house. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. In an ideal world, Notre Dame plays at Georgia Tech in Atlanta on November 14th this year, which in an ideal world, will also be the Masters. So if there's space on that floor, I'm probably not going to be able to find a hotel room in Atlanta. I would love to just crash there. <laughs> Believe me, we've had plenty of people sleep yeah. on the floor, Pete. Or, or and if you nowhere, need, near, nowhere near as accomplished or esteemed as yourself. <laughs> you need an assistant way. around, you know, patrolling the grounds on uh, Thursday and Friday before I have to cover a college football game. That'd be great. I'm, I'm happy to help. Happy to pitch in. 
understood. Understood. <laughs> you go with Rinaldi. I'll go with Brian Kelly because you know he's going to make an appearance there Sunday. Yeah, I feel like Notre no, Dame no will be question. making an early trip down to Georgia. I think for that weekend, just <laughs> just for the heck of it. And, and I will say, guys, you know Lou Holtz um, as a member at Augusta National now for for quite a while. Yeah. Lou was very generous and took. I, mean, I wasn't a part of these. Uh, these parties that uh, or these trips, but he, he hosted folks at ESPN with regularity and with great generosity at Augusta National year after year after year, which I which I thought was wonderful. And I know everyone who who went with Lou and spent time with him and, and golfed with him loved and cherished those trips. Well, Tom, I. Really appreciate you taking some time for us on this Wednesday um, to to share some stories about you know what what it's like you know seeing Notre Dame at, at an earlier time before Matt and I were covering them, but also just sort of you know some insights on Brian Kelly as well because I, I think it's you know and you and I have talked about this in the past. I, I do think as a personality, he's a he's a fascinating individual that as as Matt mentioned is has been a little bit tough to crack on a on a personal level, but I think the the more you know, you learn about him, um, I think the more interesting he becomes. So I, I appreciate you taking some time to to share some insight on uh, what made it, makes Notre Dame's head coach a little bit unique because I do think he's a unique guy and that that can sort of get lost in the wash a little bit when you see, you know, kind of the, the red face sideline behavior. I think people sort of reduce him to that, to a character and it, uh, I think there's a lot more to him and those are, those are really fascinating stories to tell. I mean, no, no question. He, he is, so much more than what I would say is such an outdated caricature, you know, screen grabber vine role of him upset on a sideline. And I, I'll tell you this, I also think um, there there are few positions in all of sport which come with more dynamics. They all come with prep when you're a head coach, but few come with more dynamics, more precincts to have to look through more levers to have to really know when push and when to pull than head coach at Notre Dame. And to do it for a decade, I, I think is, is really remarkable. And, and again, I also say, uh, don't <laughs> drop your hands because the jab will come. <laughs> yeah. All right, Tom, again, thank I you really so much for joining the show. you guys having me. All right, take care. Be Thanks, safe. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank right. you. That's it for this episode of The Shamrock. Thank you again to ESPN's Tom Rinaldi for joining us to uh, share some insights on Notre Dame football and Notre Dame football head coach Brian Kelly. We will be back in the next couple weeks as news warrants. Um, Notre Dame football is kind of dug in for the long haul here as social distancing and the campus closure continues. Uh, as referenced a little bit in our interview with Rinaldi, I'll have an interview with Jack Sorba coming up. That may warrant its own podcast. Um, we also have some insight from the coordinators, Tommy Reese and Clark Lee, that we can get to. So until our next episode, again, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed today's production. I'm Pete Sampson, my co-host, Matt Fortuna, and our special guest today was Tom Rinaldi. Thanks again for listening. Oh.